From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. Today's episode is the second part of a two-part episode on innovation in emerging markets. Senior partner Eric Roth, leader of our innovation work globally, talks with Irina Vital, an innovation leader with deep experience in emerging markets. Irina sits on the boards of some of India's largest companies and institutions, and she has led and advised on innovation projects at both large companies and startups. In the first part of the conversation, they discuss the importance of taking a very granular approach to markets in developing countries, the constraints that emerging economies place on business models, and the unique role ecosystems play. Today, Eric and Irina dive into the importance of pegging capital investments to the realities of emerging economies, and they discuss some of the most exciting areas of innovation in those markets, including some fascinating initiatives in the public sector. We hope you enjoy the second part of their conversation. Here's Eric. Arena, one of the things we do see is the need for boards in their hopes to get an organization to become more innovative and grow faster to set the bar higher through a clearer or, or a more pronounced aspiration. Oftentimes we call it the green box, sort of the gap of growth that needs to be quantified and filled by an organization. In your experience, sitting on boards, do you find that you need to nudge management to actually raise their aspirations and make different kinds of choices in terms of their investments so that they are orienting themselves more towards growth or innovation? How do you encourage the proper growth mindset in the company? Uh, Listen, first of all, as a board member, you, you hopefully have the humility to know that Great CEOs do a terrific job in very, very tough situations, right? So at best, you can hold up the mirror. And when the CEO and the team are ready, they will see what you want them to see. So it's about bringing constructive challenge and conversations into the room. I think the word is not nudge. I think it is inspire. And I think it's most helpful to really great CEOs who get so used to growing at a certain rate, that they assume that's the natural rate of growth of the organization. When, when you're sitting on a board and you, you're looking at what amazing stuff you're, they're doing, you're looking at it and saying, hey, but, you know, it's like you've built a new muscle. Why are you not, why are you not accelerating? And the guy says, but I'm growing at 15%, right? And you're saying, no, but you're capable of growing fast. So I think what's helpful is to move this conversation from annual rate of growth to what should be your rightful share in the market? What do you and your team and your great company deserve? And, and what do you therefore need to build a moat around? And that is a conversation which is much more around inspiration. You are capable of doing this, right? This is our market to, to aim for. Once he can reimagine that, then most of them are able to, good CEOs are able to deliver it. So as you look across India in particular or other emerging markets, uh, who are the inspiring analogies that you would point to in terms of companies that are really understanding growth and innovation and reframing categories? Oh, there are lots of them. I think if you look at fintech, we see a whole bunch of players who are realizing what a game China has played 
in finance, in the whole financial services. And we have a whole bunch of incumbents, as well as some attackers, but a whole bunch of incumbents who are in the middle of repurposing their business models. We're seeing this happen in the healthcare industry, where the whole thing is moving from a focus on formats like hospitals or diagnostics to patient centricity and saying, hey, what does it take to do a 24-7 multi-year relationship with a patient and to move from surgical you know, inputs and being relevant for surgeries to preventive, right? So thinking of owning a life from birth to death and thinking through what would you need to do to be able to have the data of the consumer, to be able to have the trust of the patient and then to have a clinical engagement with them uh, so that you actually reduce the amount of time they spend in the hospital, right? And it, it's in many ways, if you do a good job, you're going to shrink your current business. We see this in retail, where folks are realizing that the old formats, which was around availability, is now pretty much dead. And we need to move from pure availability to discovery in some ways to fulfillment, and not fulfillment in terms of physical fulfillment, but anticipatory fulfillment and services and uh, be able to fine-tune the talent of your team to make money not from selling products but from serving them on the adjacent services. So a whole bunch of companies who are in the middle of reinvention. So let's shift to the, the startups, the ventures you're working with. What are the, some of the most exciting things you're seeing in India in terms of new innovation and growth? from these, from the sort of the new entrants? You know, what I find fascinating about them is because they are born digital and with data, they're all experimenting with amazing things. So for example, I was sitting with a team yesterday, which has created a predictive model after the first transaction to find out who is likely to be a, a good quality customer. One of the things we realized in that particular business was there was no point in chasing every customer. We wanted high-quality customers. And so these guys have, I think they, we started with 65 variables and they've brought it down to 13 variables, which can now predict to 65% accuracy after for the first transaction on quality of customers. I find that fascinating. There's another one where we realize that India is a shallow market, even if you're digitally savvy. And so retention is incredibly critical. And then we realized that the single most important factor for retention in that particular business was the first transaction going green. And that team has identified 39 failure modes, only six of which the consumer sees, 33 of which are internal. And they're systematically now doing root cause analysis and finding solutions to go green. And they measure all of them. So what I like about the startups is it's not that they are more intelligent or less intelligent. It's that they are using technology and the intimacy that they have with, with the customer to be able to reduce inertia in, in the whole purchase cycle, to simplify the, uh, the decision-making for the customer, and more importantly, to be able to almost um, decide who they want to serve uh, and how do they want to serve them. So... You know, the incumbents can learn this too, but the startups are doing it more bravely today. And the biggest difference is because they don't just have transaction data. They have end-to-end -end consumer inside data. You know, incumbents have tons of data. And as they build the data lake, they realize that the quality of the data, A, it has to, you know, is suspect. But more importantly, 
90-95% of the data that they've captured is transaction data because the other parts of the eco of their organizations which was capturing relationship data or consumer data actually has not codified it. But some of the uh, the attackers or the new guys have captured much more than transaction data. And that's what gives them an edge to be able to follow the customer decision journey and, and fine-tune some of these things. It's funny, as you, as you describe that, it, it strikes me how often we see that large incumbents, the data is really financial orientation, right? It's how to run the company and make sure that everything yeah. adds up as opposed to the customer centricity, which is what you're describing, which all these companies are trying to achieve, but don't actually codify the information they even have. So it's very difficult to put it all together. But what, what's fascinating is, 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 as you say, these startups seem to start from a point of customer back or customer centricity. Is that by accident or by intention? I I think it's it's a bit of both. I think they capture a lot more data because of the way they engage with the with the customer the fact that it's not just about selling to them it's also about the whole process of owning them from the point the decision has made to the transaction happening and because they want repeat by the way i actually believe the incumbents have as much right to win this game as the startups do right because they have crazy institutional and category insight which perhaps they have not leveraged it might not be in the form of data so if you look at you know some of the large retailers who are now coming back in a big way in the developed markets, some of the insights they have, for example, on cross-sell and upsell, is so much more thoughtful than what the startups do because they intuitively know for literally decades how consumers have interacted with them. But incumbents are so siloed that the data insights that they have does not naturally flow into either the value proposition creation or into the way the consumer is engaged. Because large incumbents over time, because they are large, have got organized for efficiency. They are functional, right? And they do a, do a fantastic job. And so if we can bring customer centricity back into incumbents, you will find that the data exists. It's just that it's sitting in different parts. And we often don't listen to the front end, which actually has a huge amount of insight. So I think a lot of this is about, you know, almost um, being able to sweep up data that's lying in various parts of the large incumbents and do pattern recognition and then put it back out there. So if these large companies could increase the speed within which they aggregate, synthesize and act on information, would that give them a real advantage, particularly in, 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 in Indian context and other developing markets? Yes, of course. And I think the real issue is what would it take for them to synthesize and increase the speed of learning, right? And a lot of it stems from the fact that information in many incumbents is power. And why would I share information and what's in it for me? And so I think the two lessons that I've learned is one, this needs to be a critical part of strategic growth and the sponsorship has to come right from the top. Uh, and second, this needs what the startups would call agile teams, which is you need to have reason for different functions or different people to bring their insights, their data, their information together. And usually it happens if you almost structure this as 
special projects for growth or special initiatives, new initiatives, create sponsors. And the moment you do that and folks realize two things. One, growth has actually accelerated. And by the way, we did it ourselves and we enjoyed this way of working. You suddenly will find in a couple of uh, generations of this kind of working, you suddenly find the attitude to sharing information changes in large incumbents. And then elephants do dance. The real thing that I have learned is where is the enemy? Is the enemy outside or is the enemy inside? The moment you have external orientation, right? The moment you're looking at reimagining the category and share, the moment you have an enemy outside to fight, the internal enemies become friends, right? And in large organizations, especially successful large organizations, I was having a conversation the other day with 50 guys representing one of the most successful companies in India. And we were talking about paranoia of growth. And one of the, the, the vice chairman said something so interesting. He said, but we don't have a burning platform, right? So sometimes it helps if you have an enemy, and some of the best CEOs I know, one of the best CEOs I know constantly keeps creating an enemy outside because then the hordes inside are collaborating. The more external orientation you have, the more you're focused on customers, the easier it is for internal walls to, to be broken. And not to overly focus on today's context, but what you're saying would, would tie nicely to the reality of what's happened with innovation in the COVID pandemic times. The external enemy has become a pandemic and the ability for organizations to rapidly pivot and change their business models and drive new forms of innovation in order to survive uh, or, or in order to help others survive has been probably one of the, 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 the positive elements of 2020. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And in India, do you find that given the diversity of the country, that scaling things up is more difficult than in other markets? And, you know, as you think about the, the consumer uh, and perhaps the differences in consumers, depending on where they live and what might influence uh, life in those, in those areas, that startups are better at spotting those differences and taking advantage of them, given what you just described? No, I, I don't think these startups do a better job of scaling up because the, the, see, if you think about how you, how you scale up in, in India or China, you actually cluster, you cluster markets, right? And just because markets are contiguous geographically doesn't mean that they are the same. So the real trick in this is to break up the country into four or five or six clusters based on usually, even in China today, income is still the single most important driver of category. So usually in India, it's, China, it's, yeah, it's income, 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 then it is access, then it is, you know, category, category uh, you know, drivers. In China, it might be one income, and then it might be other factors. But then you cluster them because they, you're, there's no way you're going to serve 30 Indias. You serve three or four Indians at best, right? And so that kind of understanding, I think the successful incumbents have intuitively because they have done this Lego game with India already once, right? And now they're layering what used to be a geographic Lego game. The startups, just given where they are, will still start with let's win in the top 10 cities. And don't forget, the top 10 cities in India is 58 million people. So they've got a long way to go. 
before they go to the next 100 million. So a lot of startups are 10 city focused. A lot of the incumbents can go, if they get the act right in by doing proof of concept in one or two cities, can then, I think, scale up much faster because they have the institutional knowledge of clustering, which the startups don't. You're, you're bringing back fond memories of, of all of my years living in China, where I used to have to remind people that the city of Shanghai was larger than many of the markets in other countries. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so as, as you think about getting, getting the, you know, growth in India right, um, or, or other emerging markets, as you, I know you've spent so much time in many of them, what are the other critical lessons as a leader how do you make sure your organization is tuned properly to, to really understand those dynamics and then capitalize on them? I think there are two characteristics of the market that's worth keeping in mind in addition to de-averaging and reimagining the business model. And then I think a lot of it is around how you run the company. The two other things, I think one is around the importance of what I call the war on waste. Cost is a competitive advantage in emerging markets because there is such little pricing power, right? And you almost have to build a business model which assumes a real price cost squeeze of 1% to 2% year on year. And somebody taught me this equation once, one of my clients, who said that the margin is given by the head office, the price is given by the local competitor. You actually have only the cost to play, right? So C is equal to price minus margin. That's the game you play. You don't play the game which says cost plus margin is, e is equal to price. And the other thing is risk. You've got to look at risk-adjusted returns in emerging markets because every year something goes wrong. I mean, that's, that's the whole nature of the game. And you can't cry and say, oh, this thing went off. You just have a plan B built into your margin structure, into your business model. So those are the two characteristics that you keep in mind. But I think... And I don't know whether it's different, but because a lot of organizations are still young in these countries, and even if you look at multinationals, because a lot of them uh, seek to create emerging market models, which are slightly different from the developed markets, I think the whole, the two things that become really critical is clarity on source of growth. You've got to be very, very sharp about where the next $100 million are coming from, and make choices because you could easily fragment yourself chasing many, many small rabbits in China and India. That doesn't help. So source of growth. And the second thing is, while everybody does a great job of vertical cascading and alignment, horizontal collaboration is very critical. Because remember, the functions are critical because they're all outward facing, you know, your supply chain guy is working with a fragmented vendor base, your sourcing guy is working with a fragmented base, your finance guy is looking at risks in a different kind. So the functions have a tougher job in many cases, in many, many uh, cases. But the horizontal collaboration amongst these leaders is actually as critical in these markets as the vertical cascading of, of targets is. And therefore, being thoughtful about metrics, you know, making sure you have three plus one, three metrics for this year, one metric for health of the company, incredibly critical. Shared metrics across functions very, very critical. And these things, I think, in emerging markets require a lot more focus because a lot of companies are still young in their, in their DNA. You've mentioned metrics a few times. What, what are some of your favorite go-to metrics as you think about you know, growth and innovation, particularly in developing markets, if, if you have some? I think one metric for me is when do you declare a customer has been acquired? 
right? So you don't target a guy for acquisition once with a CAC, right? It's actually about when you become part of his monthly basket or when you become part of his ritual, right? So defining acquisition, not as the first transaction, but as retention transaction, to me is very critical. The other one is the quality of the customer that you acquire. It's very easy in emerging markets which have large populations to always grow top line, right? The real issue is retention. And so the quality of customers, how do you know which is a good customer and how do you over time become more relevant to the good customer is incredibly critical. I know of great growers who have let go of customers who, you, who they thought were not fit for their product market offering and were comfortable with a smaller top line but a stronger and more predictable bottom line than anything else. And then the third one for me is return on capital employed. This, these countries are businesses about cash. It's very easy to have vanity metrics in these countries. But the only thing that matters in these countries because of high risk is return on capital employed, not gross margin, not gross margin. These are rosy businesses. And so keeping in mind return on capital employed is very, very critical. Do most CEOs understand that these are rosy businesses and, and you got to watch the CapEx, not the OpEx line? Or is that confusing to folks? Because, you know, we, there's so many discussions on OpEx and particularly in growth. <laughs> and, you know, you get front end of the funnel stuff that is uh, all about um, experimentation. But then, you know, at some point you got to invest in capital perhaps to make it actually produce things and, and, and get and get distribution and other things. And is that is that well understood in, in <laughs> India? Because it's not so well understood elsewhere. No, I think I think it's well understood amongst the good leaders. But I must tell you a really funny story. We were serving an amazing company uh, from the U.S. They were setting up a business in India, and they had a $300 million capex. And we did the math and said, in 100 years, you're not going to get returns on this. And they said, but these are our quality standards, right? We're used to FDA standards. And I remember meeting a whole bunch of burly, big, white men who laughed at me and said, when was the last time you built a factory? for this quality of product, right? And I said, no, you're, we've convinced your global CEO we need a plant at $20 million, which will be FDA approved, $300 million to $20 million. We ended up, and they finally built a plant for $54 million. FDA approved, right? So, and and they, it was the same bunch of guys. And they did a fantastic job. They're making money hand over fist. If they had invested $300 million, they were dead in the water, the day the plant would have been inaugurated. So I think a, a whole bunch of people who've, who've got their fingers burnt and have <laughs> written down values, <laughs> which are obscene, have learned this. But a lot of the good managers have got it. I mean, these countries are rule of thumb. If something costs you $100 in the US, in China and India, it shouldn't cost you more than 40 45 You know, if your cost to serve is X in the US, in these markets, it shouldn't be more than 50% of, of that. So... These are rule of thumb, the rules of thumb that you realize over time. And do you think those rules of thumb have, have become rules of management? Because, you know, as you say, the differential between what good is for an, a, a, com a company coming from a, the developed world, like the U.S. or Europe, relative to what good looks like for a company in a China, in an India, very, very different. And a lot of innovation, uh, and I remember years ago we used to talk about innovation through incremental change in, in China, where they're so fast and they're willing to put something out and, and make it better over time. And I think India was largely the, the same idea. And back then, companies did not understand what you just described. You know, one of the funny things that I've learned is adults don't learn by listening. 
they learn by doing right so i think anybody who's got burnt has understood this i think also a lot of it depends on the sagacity of the global ceo and the sponsorship uh, how close is an emerging market to the global ceo if it is close then i think they get it earlier because they get pained a lot earlier but if it is layered then then you really struggle but a lot of multinationals who grow very well in these markets have understood this that there is that these are truly markets because of income because of income uh, and the demand structure these are truly markets which are made for good better best and they keep evolving the good better best keeps moving upwards but if you come with too much of best or you come with last season's best the consumer kicks you out you can't even fool them right uh, the consumer is smart and especially the top end consumer is a global consumer so you've got to stay you have to iterate these markets are about iteration and just staying slightly above the income but these are not about uh, gold plating now you do a lot of work with the government on urban issues and agriculture does the government in india also try to use innovation uh, and 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 learning and iteration in the way it tackles some of these issues and and uh, we do get a lot of questions from governments and public institutions around the world uh trying to use innovation more more pronounced in a more pronounced way to to try to drive change there are lots of things that our government does foolishly but some of the most stunning innovation i have seen has been in has been done by some of our really good politicians and bureaucrats so let me just give you two examples one is i think there are a whole bunch of public assets being built in india using technology which are going to truly prevent capture by large corporates in on the data side so for example the whole identity system which is digitally enabled or even in finance the whole upi platform which is an open architecture you can plug and play all your new age apps but the platform is a common platform that is a public platform incredible but the other thing which i find fascinating is some of the bureaucrats have done such an amazing job on last mile uh with where there's inequality so i'll give you an example we have a whole bunch of poor in india who get food from the government through the public distribution system and there were always there was always noise saying anywhere between 30 and 70% of this is siphoned off and in parts of india now this is fully digitized you know i went to a village and there was a small store which didn't even have a roof run by an illiterate guy he was fully digitized and he gets he gets the grain from the government and the amount of grain he gets ba- is based on a, a digital id card that he carries the weighing machine has a cute american accent and the woman will say 500 grams of sugar because so many people are illiterate so the weighing is not done visually it's done you know or- orally the payment the person brings a card which has the money that's transferred from the government digitally and pays for this food digitally so it's all cashless all digital and totally enabled by technology and 50 60% of the beneficiaries are illiterate and the whole system is technology enabled some of the biggest use of technology and innovation is by the state governments and the governments in india just because we are so late to governance and because technology allows you to do this at scale and when you have 1.3 1.4 billion people uh, this kind of help so 
I'm quite astonished. People talk about Estonia. I think Estonia is awesome. 1.1 million people. Um, some of the most interesting work in technology and innovation is happening in India too. Are there a lot of lessons to then be learned from India and particularly in the public sector around, I mean, because I, I, you know, I think about the example you just made and I'm, I'm sitting here in the U.S. thinking, gee, where can I find an analogy that would be similar uh, at the scale that you just described? And I, I'm, I can't think of one at the moment. I'll be probably puzzling on that all day. But um, are there some real lessons to learn that others could use as analogies and inspiration for perhaps changing the way uh, governments serve uh, and interact with with the population. Yeah, there is a lot. I mean, our bureaucrats have created a group on Telegram, and they keep exchanging messages with each other. So there's a lot of learning inside. And don't get me wrong; there's lots to do. I think we are in day one on our governance and our last mile getting the government piece right. But what I find fascinating is that our bureaucrats, which are the heart of um, building out the government, start with thinking of digital and technology. Right? I mean, it's it's gone ingrained, saying, hey, if you want to solve this, you have to start with that platform. And so that, to me, is where the hope is. We get it right, I would say, 20% of the time. We still screw up 80% of the time. But uh, yes, there are a lot of lessons to be learned in education, in, in um, water management, in food for poor, in the equivalent of digital money being sent to pensioners and to old people. A lot of this is now technology enabled and yes a lot of lessons to be learned first by indians themselves and then of course by the world well irena you've been incredibly generous with your time as always i learned a tremendous amount from you and i know our listeners uh will also i just wanted to thank you again uh for staying up late uh and and joining us uh today and i'm really looking forward to you know continuing the dialogue learning from you and 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 many many future interactions so thank you so much Thank you for having me. This was always fun with you, Eric. Thank you all for listening to this second part of Eric and Irina's discussion. For a transcript of this conversation, we encourage you to visit our Inside the Strategy Room page on McKinsey.com, where you may also easily explore, filter, and search our library of previous episodes, including those focused on innovation. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast episode, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. If you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com, follow us on Twitter at mckstrategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.